So today was one of those days where it kind of fell right in the middle with the amount of snow that we were getting, with the timing that the snow was coming. Uh, we could have gone either way in either having church or canceling church. I think a lot of churches still had services. A lot of churches canceled services. And so we kind of talked back and forth through text to myself and a couple of the elders and elected to have church. And I thought that was a good idea based on what I was seeing. Um, And then I got here at like 8 a.m., still felt pretty good about things. And then around 8.45, I kind of found myself thinking like, okay, I'm kind of wondering, should we have canceled? Maybe we shouldn't have had church. Maybe we should have just called it a day. But then I realized how silly it kind of was for me to believe that. Because part of the reason I was thinking that, I admit it in my own weakness, um, was I was thinking, you know, it would really be bad uh, to preach a sermon and to have worship and put all this effort into things if there's only going to be a few people here, if there aren't going to be as many people as usual. But then as I caught myself thinking about that, it kind of exposed my own weakness and my own sin and my own doubt in that I had bought in for just a moment to lie that says that, well, God can't do much with only a few people. But that is a lie. And any time God's people are gathering together, any time God's people are singing praises, no matter who's leading worship, any time God's word is being preached, no matter who the person is that's preaching it, God can do something with that. And so I'm glad that we're here, and I'm glad that you're here, and I'm thankful that you're here and that we all got here safely. Now, with that, most of us have heard the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child common saying. A lot of people have heard it before. And in other words, the idea is that the only way a child will end up being a well-rounded and responsible contributing adult is if they have multiple positive influences. People who love them, people who care about them, people who are investing them and teaching them and guiding them. Not just parents, but it could be a teacher or it could be the neighbor or it could be the restaurant owner down the street. Now, in today's day and age, we hear that phrase, takes a village to raise a child, and we kind of think, you know, that sounds a little bit outdated. We live in a world where many of us rarely speak with our neighbors. Many of us have to drive to get to stores and restaurants and schools, so you don't really have that picturesque walking to the store or walking to the restaurant and talking to everyone as you go as they're sitting on their porches. So this picture of the old village isn't quite as common as it used to be. But at the same time, the root of that old principle, it takes a village to raise a child, I believe is still true. At the most basic level, when a child is born, that child is weak, that child is defenseless, that child is completely vulnerable. And so the only way that a child will possibly survive and mature and eventually end up thriving is if there are other people around to take care of that child. If you had a baby born and you left that baby out on its own to fend for itself, it won't make it very far. And I believe the same can be said of followers of Jesus. I believe God wants his church to survive and mature and thrive. And really, the only way that can happen is if the individual people within the church are surviving and maturing and thriving themselves. We're kind of like newborn babies, a little bit more than we might like to admit. 
as Christians, if we're left alone, we might survive for a little while. But we'll never make it far enough to actually mature and eventually thrive. Because we need fellow believers around us who are positive influences to guide us and to teach us. People who love us and care about us. You might say it takes a village to raise a child, but you could also say that it takes the church to raise a Christian. Now, today we'll be talking a little bit more about this. And the main point that I want to get across is pretty simple. The main point is that God's people are called to maturity. And that can only happen when we mature together. So with that, open up to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 837. And if you don't own a Bible, or maybe if you don't happen to know somebody who doesn't own a Bible, grab one of our welcome desk Bibles, take one of them for yourself, for that friend, neighbor, family member, whatever. That way they can have access to Scripture. But before we read Ephesians 4, let's pray together. And then we'll get started. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Um, In spite of the weather, in spite of all the potential obstacles, uh, we're here and we're here safely. And God, I pray that uh, there would be no place that we'd rather be uh, than in fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, God, I pray for those who aren't here. Uh, that you would give them time uh, to worship you on their own this morning, whether it's uh, taking some personal time in the word or uh, even just listening to some worship music or or whatever that might look like, God. Um, Just I pray that they would find a way to have communion with you, um, even if they aren't here in this building. And God, I pray for everyone else out on the roads uh, right now or later today, uh, that you would keep them safe, that you would keep us safe. And God, I pray that as we gather together here, uh, that you would give us clear hearts and clear minds and ears to hear uh, what it is that you might have to say to us this morning. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So as Paul starts out, he urges the Ephesians to walk in a worthy manner. Now, first things first, some of us hear that phrase and immediately our defenses go up. And the reason for that is that we sometimes think that this idea of walking in a manner worthy of our calling seems to undermine the idea of salvation by grace through faith. But Paul, of all people, would be the first to say without hesitance that none of us is truly worthy of salvation. It is purely by grace that we are saved. It is not something that we earn. It's not something that God is obligated to give to us. It's not something that we could ever deserve. We are purely and completely saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he's not undermining that. He's not undermining God's grace by urging the Ephesians to walk in this manner. He's not instantly, all of a sudden, randomly turning into a rules-obsessed, 
legalist who will jump down your throat the second that you mess up and say that you can't possibly be saved if you still wrestle with sin. That is not what Paul is saying at all. These two things, salvation by grace through faith and walking in a manner worthy of our calling, these two things are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to choose one or the other. And Paul's main point is that upon being saved by God's grace, our lives will change. Now, this change may not happen overnight. In fact, more often than not, it doesn't happen overnight. There are serious moments of one step forward and two steps back, it feels like. There are moments of ups and there are moments of downs. But nonetheless, Paul's idea is that transformation is inevitable for the person who has been saved by God's grace, for the person whose heart has been changed by the grace of God, for the person who's been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is not based upon our transformation, as if we have to change ourselves in order to prove ourselves worthy, and then God saves us. That's not how it works at all. God saves us by his grace. He changes our hearts by his grace. And our lives change as an outpouring of what God has done. The new identity that we've been given in Christ that we talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, that's not just a change in status. That's not just a new title. The idea is that our entire lives would change as a result of what God has done. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. You may have noticed that we spend a lot of time in Colossians in this sermon series. Colossians and Ephesians have a lot in common. But look at what Paul says in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So again, Paul stresses, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But he says, when this happens, this walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, that's not just your doing. That's not just you trying really hard to be different. That's not just you sitting back and saying, well, I'm a Christian now. I guess I should start acting like it. It's fruit. Being born in your life because your heart has been changed by God's grace, because the Holy Spirit has been given to you. So Paul stresses, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Strive to please God and let fruit be seen in your everyday life. Now, of course, the question would have to be asked, why does Paul care about this so much? For Paul, why does our walk matter? To the point where he would mention it in Ephesians. To the point where he would mention it in Colossians. To the point where he would stress what the life of the believer looks like in many of his letters, if not all of his letters. Why does Paul care so much? Well, that goes back to what we talked about last week. That truth that God is using the church to change the world. That the church is God's primary tool for making the gospel visible to the world. In other words, as intimidating as it might sound, we are God's witnesses in the world around us. God wants us to be credible 
witnesses. Paul wants us to be credible witnesses. That's why this life change, this transformation is so important. Imagine you saw an infomercial for a hair restoration product. And like hair restoration products, there's the before picture. And there is the person who's bald and they have a sad look on their face because they're just so unhappy because they're bald, which is kind of silly to begin with. But that's the before picture. They're unhappy because they're bald. But then you see the after picture in the infomercial. And the after picture is the exact same as the before picture. That wouldn't really give a lot of legitimacy to that product. It wouldn't really make you think, okay, this seems to be credible. This seems to work. There seems to be something to this. This has some substance to it. That's not how it works at all. Our walks give credibility to the gospel. Because when our lives are transformed as a result of our hearts being changed, people look at the church. They look at sinners like us and they say, wow. Clearly that person is changing. Clearly that person is not the same as they were before. And that can't be attributed to their own hard work. They can't take all the credit for that. Maybe there really is something to that gospel. Maybe there really is something to that Jesus, to that Bible that they read so much. Because they're not the same people that I knew. Now, of course, the question begs, what does this, man, what does this worthy manner really look like? Well, Paul gives a few traits. He gives humility, gentleness, patience, love, desire for unity. In other words, walking by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of things in common with that list. The idea is that these things, even though they fly in the face of worldly wisdom, these are now the things that mark the walk of the believer. In today's day and age, if you want to get ahead, humility isn't always the answer. In fact, more often it's not the answer. If you're humble, the thought is that you'll get walked all over. You'll just be a doormat. If you're gentle, you can't be gentle if you want to get ahead in the world. You've got to be ruthless if you want to get ahead in the world. You can't be patient. You have to take what's yours and not wait around for things to happen. You need to make things happen yourself. You can't love and climb up the ladder, you've got to be willing to betray anyone and everyone who gets in your way. And you certainly can't have a desire for unity. If you want to get ahead, you've got to look out for yourself. You can't worry about all the people around you. So even though these things seem to fly in the face of what the world values or what the world deems as pragmatic, Paul says that these are the marks of someone walking by the Spirit. This is what it looks like for someone to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing God and letting that inner transformation manifest itself on the outside. So Paul wants us to walk in this worthy manner, and we do this not by our own strength, not by our own power, but because God has given us the spirit, because our hearts have been changed. But then he moves on in Ephesians chapter four, verse four. Kind of shifts gears a little bit. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all 
and through all and in all. Now, if you've been here for every week of this sermon series, you might be thinking, okay, great, we get it. Here's Paul again, and this obsession with unity that he has. It's all he ever talks about in the book of Ephesians. But as he's talking here, he really hits on the basis of the Ephesians unity. He says that they're all one, 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 one. Body, spirit, hope, faith, baptism, God, Lord, all these things they have in common. And when you consider all these things put together, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and do it in the context of unity because you have all these things in common. The idea seems to be when you jumble it all together for Paul is that the United Church produces mature Christians and mature Christians make for a united church. They kind of lean on one another. They have their strength in one another because the only way that we can truly survive and mature and thrive to our fullest potential is if we are one as if we are a community because the truth is that we need each other we lean on one another we give each other strength and it is only in this context that we can truly truly grow now the good news is that paul has reason to be optimistic he doesn't look at the ephesians and think oh man these people are in a sorry state of affairs and it is going to be an absolute miracle if these people grow it's going to be absolutely impossible. I doubt it can happen that these people will grow. I doubt this church will ever be united because they are just so different and these things really can't be overcome. That's not Paul's attitude at all. Paul is confident that these Ephesians will grow, that this church will be united. But his confidence is not in the Ephesian people. His confidence is in God's grace. Look at verse 7, Ephesians 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So it's by God's grace that we've been saved, but it is also by God's grace that we've been gifted. And Paul specifically finds his confidence for this in Jesus, the one who ascended, the one who descended. This is Paul's basis for his assurance that this church will be united. These people will grow. And Paul says that I'm as sure of that as I am of Jesus's incarnation and Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and return. Paul is confident of these things. He talks about Jesus, this dissension and ascension. Jesus descended in the incarnation, leaving heaven and putting on flesh, becoming fully man, leaving the glory of heaven behind for your sake and for my sake. He descended again in his death, physically going into a tomb and spiritually by taking our sin and our punishment and the wrath that we deserve upon himself, becoming sin on our behalf. 
He ascended upon his resurrection, rising from the dead three days after he was killed. He ascended upon his ascension, returning to God and sitting at God's right hand where he is ruling and reigning at this very moment. But there's one dissension left. Jesus will descend again and he will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven once and for all because he will return. Paul is so confident in the Ephesian church's growth. He's so confident that they will grow together, that they will be united because they've been saved by God's grace and because they've been given gifts for the church's benefit. And Paul is just as sure of this as he is of Jesus himself. Now, what are the gifts? Okay, look at verse 11 of chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul says that these gifts that Christ gives, the one who led the captives free, when you read that passage about Jesus leading captives free and giving gifts to men, imagine Jesus coming in and setting free his people who had been captured and been held in captivity by sin and by rebellion. And Jesus is pictured as the victorious savior coming in and defeating all the enemies and leading those once captives back into freedom. That's what Christ has done for us. But he also gives gifts. And these gifts are given in lots of different ways. Paul says the church is gifted with people who lead, gifted with people who preach the gospel to those who are saved, gifted with people who share the gospel with those who don't no Christ. The church is gifted with people who shepherd, people who teach, people who mentor and guide and build into. And all of this is in order that the people of the church might be equipped. It's not just the people with titles who have been given gifts. It's not just the people who have some kind of specific outlined role or specific responsibilities in the church. Those are not the only gifted people. Every single believer has a gift. Every single believer has the Holy Spirit. One of the common teachings of the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. And it's not just the religious leaders. It's not just the people with the education or the people with the ability to read the scriptures better than everyone else. It's not just them who contribute to the growth of the church. It's not just them who do ministry. It's every single one of us. Every single one of us has a gift in order that we might build one another up and equip one another, teach one another, encourage one another to use the gifts that they've been given. You know, on these banners, we have our mission, that thing we want to accomplish, that end goal, which is making devoted and maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus. Again, we don't want followers of Jesus who just ascribe their mind to a certain set of doctrines. We want people who are growing. People who love Christ and are always realizing just how much growth they still have left. 
People who are never done growing. People who have a constant hunger for growth in Christ. But if that's what we want to accomplish, then our vision is how we think it's going to be accomplished. And that's this banner over here. And if you notice, the fourth thing down there is equipping one another for ministry. We as a church truly believe that God has given you a gift, that God has given me a gift, that every single one of us has some type of gift in order that we might equip one another, in order that we might all do ministry here at this church, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, everywhere we go, we equip one another for ministry. And God gives these gifts to the church. God gives these gifts to you and God gives these gifts to me in order that we might all mature together. That we might all grow. That we might all survive and mature and thrive. That we might grow in our unity together as a church. That we might grow in our faith even when the storms of life make us question it. That we might grow in our knowledge of Christ. And that we might grow in our discernment. Paul specifically mentions children who are tossed to and fro by the waves of unsound doctrine, of poor teaching. People who just go along with whatever the common and popular teaching might be, regardless of what scripture might say. And Paul's goal is to say, no, don't remain children. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just accept everything you hear. Have discernment. Dedicate yourself to good teaching. Have a hunger for good teaching because that's a sign of maturity. Paul doesn't want us to remain children forever. Paul wants us to mature. We see some of this in his own life in Philippians chapter 3. There are multiple passages where Paul talks about how when I became a man, I gave up the ways of a child. I used to act like a child and think like a child and talk like a child. But I don't do that anymore because I'm a new person and I desire growth. I want to know Christ better. And we see it specifically in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul deeply hungers for growth. He deeply hungers for union with Christ. On the one hand, he's already united with Christ. But on the other hand, Paul knows that he has so much room to grow. And Paul's hunger for his own maturity, he wants all of us to have that same hunger. That we are willing to go through the sufferings of Christ in order that we might attain the resurrection. That we are willing to count everything as loss compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ better. Look at what Peter says about children in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Paul says, don't remain a child forever. Don't be content with immaturity. But then Peter says, well, you know what? In kind of way, kind of try to be like a child. Be like a child in the sense that if you've seen a newborn baby, when that newborn baby is hungry, it squirms, it cries, it screams, it pokes its face out looking for any source of nutrition that it can possibly find. All that matters to that baby is the food that will help it grow. I pray that would be the same truth about us, that we would desire growth, that we would desire maturity just as strong as that newborn baby desires milk. Because we don't want to remain children forever. Paul doesn't want us to remain children forever. God doesn't want us to remain children forever. And I pray that we might not be content ourselves with remaining children forever. Now again, importantly, if Christians aren't growing together, all this stuff about maturity and growth and having this desire to grow and develop and all that stuff, all that stuff is well and good. But if we're not doing it together, we will never grow to our fullest potential. We'll be placing a glass ceiling on the growth that God wants to see in us if we aren't in community with other believers. Because we miss out on what they can teach us, how they can serve us. We miss out on the gifts that God has given them and how they might benefit us in our own growth. And conversely, we rob them of ways that we can teach them, of ways that we can serve them, of ways that God can use us to help them grow. So if we aren't in community, we place this glass ceiling on our own spiritual growth. That's not to say that someone can't be a Christian if they aren't involved in a community. I think there are extenuating circumstances that maybe that blanket statement can't be made. However... It's very, very, very important that we grow together. Because if we aren't together, we might end up looking like those children that Paul talked about in Ephesians 4. Tossed about by the waves. No direction. No guidance. No idea of where we are on the map. Because we desperately need each other. We can only grow together. And God calls his people to mature together. Now, with all this sermon series, with everything that Paul says in Ephesians, this all looks really good on paper. Sounds nice. They're good ideas. They're nice sentiments. But what do they really look like? How do we mature in our faith and our unity and our knowledge and our discernment? And how do we help others to mature in in those same areas? Well, Paul closes out in verses 15 and 16. By saying this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So if you're looking for the one thing 
If you're looking for the one piece of advice that Paul would give for your maturity and for all of our maturities, he uses one phrase that covers a lot of ground. And that phrase is speaking the truth in love. Think about all the ground that covers. What does it look like to speak the truth in love when it comes to encouraging one another? Speaking the truth and reminding one another of your new identity in Christ. That you're not the same person that you were before. That you may be going through a time of despair. You may be going through a spiritual valley. But you are a child of God. Don't give up. Don't forget that. Don't lose sight of who you are in Christ. By the grace that God has given you. Let's speak the truth in love as we encourage Let's speak the truth in love when it comes to forgiveness, encouraging one another to forgive, even when it's hard, even when we don't want to, even when it seems completely contrary to what the world would have us do. We speak the truth in love. We remind one another of the words of Jesus when it comes to forgiveness. We speak the truth in love when it comes to confession. We confess our sins to one another. Not holding back the things that might be embarrassing because we care for our growth. So we speak the truth about our sin, that we might hold one another accountable for our long-term growth. We speak the truth in love when it comes to rebuke. When we see a fellow believer who's going down a path that leads nowhere but destruction, we speak up. We speak the truth in love, even though it may be awkward, even though it may make things very, very tense in the short term. We speak the truth in love because we desire their growth. We desire their long-term maturity. We speak the truth in love as we teach. Even when our teaching is politically incorrect, even when our teaching seems to fly in the face of the values of the world in which we live, we speak the truth in love by calling out bad teaching when we see it. And addressing bad doctrine whenever it creeps its way into our own lives or whenever it creeps its way into the church. We speak the truth in love in all of these areas because we have a desire for growth, not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Now, Paul specifically gives this imagery of the head, growing up into the head, the head being Jesus. And the idea is that we might all work properly. We all have a role to play. We're all a different part of the body. Jesus is the head of the body, and we want to grow up into our head. Now, with Nolan, Nolan is at an age where he's trying to sit up, and he sometimes can do it. But a lot of the time, he'll sit up for five or ten seconds, and his massive head that is in no way proportional to his body will force him to fall over. Left, right, front, back. He falls over in some way. He can't sit up for long. And so if we want him to sit up, if we want him to get his tummy work out, then we have to put pillows around him. That way, when he does fall, he won't get hurt. Or we have to have our hands right there behind him, ready to catch him whenever he leans over too far in one direction. Now, the idea is that sometimes we're like that baby. We haven't quite grown up into our head. And if we try to sit up on our own, then we're going to fall. We're going to get hurt because we're not proportional when we're stuck by ourselves. We're not proportional when we're in isolation. We need each other to catch us. 
We need each other to support us. We can't do it on our own. We can't work properly on our own. And we can't grow on our own. Because God calls his people to mature together. The first time I ever preached at Prairie View was November of 2012, and I used a sermon illustration about redwood trees. Maybe you remember it. I'm going to recycle it, so here it is again, because I think it's really, really good. So, redwood trees. Have you ever seen them? Some of the tallest trees in the world. Just massive trees. I've never seen one in person. I would love to, but huge trees. But as you look at these trees and see how tall they are, you would think, man, their roots must go really, really, really deep to hold this tree up. But the truth is that their roots don't go deep at all. Their roots grow very, very shallow. So how is it when you look at it and consider how tall this tree is and how shallow the roots, how can they possibly stand up? When wind comes, when a storm comes, you'd think they would just fall over in a heartbeat. Well, the reason these trees stand up, the reason they withstand the wind and the storms is because their roots grow together. Their roots intertwine, and so they hold one another up. If you took one of those redwood trees and somehow managed to dig it up and replant it somewhere in the middle of nowhere, it would not last very long because the roots are too shallow, there's no other trees around it to support it, and it would blow over in a heartbeat. Likewise, if you took a baby redwood tree and put it out in the middle of nowhere, it might grow for a little while, but it would never reach the height of the other redwood trees that are together because eventually it would grow full blow over before it ever reached that ultimate height. Just like those redwood trees, we need one another. That's the only way that we can possibly grow. God has given us the church in order that we might be in community with one another, in order that we might grow together. So let's challenge one another to mature. Let's teach one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's speak the truth in love. Let's pray for one another that growth might happen, that we might have that hunger. Earlier in the sermon series, I ended a sermon by saying that the only thing better than one person whose identity has been changed by the grace of God is a bunch of people whose identities have been changed by the grace of God. Now, I want to briefly add to that this morning. I want to say that the only thing better than a bunch of people whose identities have been changed by the grace of God is a bunch of people whose identities have been changed by the grace of God and have a hunger to grow. Have a hunger to not be children. Have a realization that our identities being changed, that's just the beginning of our walk with Christ. That we might have a desire that the rest of our walk, the rest of our lives, every single area might give glory to God as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That our transformed hearts, that the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that the community that we're in with fellow believers, all those things might join together and God might use each of those three things and make us mature. Help us to grow. Help us to grow into our head that we might give glory to God. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's really, really easy to look at ourselves and think, you know, 
I'm a pretty good Christian. I don't steal, I don't cuss, I don't smoke, I don't do all the things I used to do, but God, I pray that we would never be content with where we are. That we would be humbly aware of just how far we have to go. That we would be humbly aware that the growth that remains, the maturity that we're lacking, these things don't come by our own power. These, th- these things come because in your grace you've changed our hearts, in your grace you've given us community, in your grace you've given us the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that this church might be a place where we're growing, that we're maturing, that we have that hunger to mature and grow because we want to know you better. I pray that we would make the most of the opportunities that we have to serve one another and teach one another and speak the truth in love. I pray that we, would, that we might take advantage of the gifts that you've given us, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of those around us. God, I pray that we would never forget just how much we need one another, that we lean on one another, that we hold one another up, that we catch each other when we fall. God, thank you for your grace. If not for your grace and saving us and sending your son to die for us, if not for his blood on the cross, if not for his resurrection, then none of this stuff about maturity and growth, none of that stuff would matter. But God, you've saved us by your grace. You've gifted us by your grace. And God, I pray that that will just be the beginning of our walk with you. God, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, growth is not going to happen. Spiritual growth is impossible without that initial step, without that initial grace of God changing your heart and regenerating your heart, that growth and transformation and maturity might happen, that there might be an outpouring of that in your everyday walk. So if you haven't made that decision yet to follow Christ, I pray that you would make that this morning. We'll have several of our elders standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you, happy to answer questions, happy to share ways in which God has helped them grow in their own lives. So talk to one of those guys if you haven't made that decision yet.